Welcome to the New Books Network. Journal of Women's History um, podcast. I'm your host for today, Mireci Velasquez. Welcome to New Books and Women's History, Linda. Thank you for joining us, uh, joining me today to discuss your new book, Nepatlan Square, Transgender Mestizos History in Times of Global Shift, which was published in 2020 from the University of Nebraska Press. I'd like to briefly introduce you uh, to our listeners, then we'll dive right into our conversation for today. So I hope that's okay. Um, Dr. Linda Heidenreich is an Associate Professor of History and Women's and Gender and Sexuality Studies at Washington State University. They are the author of This Land Was Mexican One, Histories of Resistance from Northern California, and co-editor of Three Decades of Engendering History, Selected Works of Antonia Castañeda. Uh, So thank you for joining us today, Linda. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your schooling, your history, and really share how you came to engage in historical research, kind of your scholarly origin story of sorts. Um, okay, and that's, you know, that's, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, I think especially for those of us uh, for whom Nepantla really resonates, because Nepantla speaks very much to the chaos in our lives. And um, so my, my origin story is very chaotic. <laughs> and I always think when somebody thinks, you know, so how did you come to be here? Well, well, where do I start? Where do I start? Um, I was the only one in my family and my neighborhood really to go to the university, right? So getting to the university was a long chaotic story um, in itself. And I still remember sitting as an undergrad in my advisor's office, Sally Scully, God bless her soul. And as she was signing off on my paperwork to graduate, she said, you're going to graduate school, aren't you? And I very calmly said, because being a good undergraduate, I never admitted what I didn't know. Somebody might think I didn't belong there. And so I said, yeah. And then I went and asked my girlfriends what graduate school was. (laughs) And and so for me, this is one of those important lessons for professors. It's never assume your students um, know the ropes, especially if you're teaching. This was a state school. Uh, working class students or students from the margins, because part of our survival skill is fitting in as well as we can. Um, and so I, <laughs> for graduate school then, um, I relied on my girlfriends asking them advice on, you know, so, you know, what's this letter of intent thing? What's a, what's a GRE and learning to call it the GRE and not the GED, you know? Um, <laughs> so, um Going to grad school, I wound up staying at San Francisco State and getting my master's degree and learning to ask questions. And there was a a professor there by the name of Barbara Loomis who really understood the working class experience and walked us through the ropes, just really uh, took time out to read our letters, um, took time out to tell us what to look at in a PhD program. and we would be lined up outside her office just waiting for her to, to look, over, look over our stuff. And so, um, so I was always a bit of a history nut, um, loved history, majored in history, honestly, because I had a horrible crush on one of my high school teachers. And so my first scholarship was actually in biology, right? I just, books were my big escape, Right. The big lesson that my mama taught me was education is going to make your life better. Right. 
Um, and so books were my big escape. But I had this this horrible crush on this teacher. And so I thought, well, history is sexy. I'm going to be, you know, a history teacher. And, and, and so it wasn't until I got to college that I really started questioning the histories that were taught to me um, and seeing the power that is in history. And I was taking this course by Bob Cherney, God bless his soul, um, who has since passed, um, and who really tried to be inclusive, but had problems thinking outside the box. And, and he was teaching immigration in the early 20th century. And I knew that thousands of people had come up north <laughs> in the early 20th century because that's when my mother's family came. Um, and there were no Mexicans in his curriculum. No, we were just gone. And at that point in time, because I wasn't digging into our history, I didn't know it was actually a million, a million people, right, crossed the border and a million people died. I just knew it was, you know, thousands of people came over. Um, and so the power of history really started to sink into me um, and the importance of, of having those stories brought in and disrupting this narrative that was erasing these stories. And so I went and I talked to him right, and we had a, a really what I thought was a productive conversation. Um, I think it was pretty balls of me, ballsy of me back when I was an undergrad to, to walk into his office and say, you know, there's a problem with your course, but I was just confused and angry all at the same time. Um, and so I started doing more digging. And finally, as a university student, started making more connections between the, the home histories that I had um, and the histories that were taught in the university, which became critical for me when I taught junior high school, right? So I finished my master's, got a teaching credential, taught junior high school, um, I wound up teaching inner city and knew the importance of the students having their own histories. And so when uh, I saw the curriculum, I kind of freaked. And one of the older teachers said, you know, you can teach anything that's in the warehouse. And we have this great stuff from the 1970s you can pull in. And so I would teach the stuff that was in the warehouse that had been produced post-liberation movements. Um, but eventually I did go back for my Ph.D., um, which was an incredible experience. I went to the University of California, San Diego. Um, for me, it was just, it was bizarre because I had been at San Francisco State where there was this great class diversity. And then I wound up at UC San Diego, which was for me, the land of Barbie. <laughs> it was just a trip. Um, and so I wound up hanging out more with other Latinos because that was who the other working class students were. Um, we started a group called Rasa Grads um, as a support and to help undergrads. Um, I had the honor of working with Dave and Ramon Gutierrez. And um, Ramon was incredible. He just... Uh, basically can teach anyone how to write on the planet. Anybody had to do research. Um, and Dave was a big, a big brother to, to most of us. Um, I, once I needed to, to travel home for a, a family celebration, um, one of my siblings was, was celebrating sobriety and, um, and he was like, you know, do you, did you have the tickets you need to get home? <laughs> you know, And so that kind of support 
just from the girlfriends and from my my professors made the the stress of grad school very doable and forged relationships that the girlfriends from Rasa grads, we still put panels together for conferences, right? Um, and so I would say to any graduate school students who are listening, you know, um, your, your, your colleagues, your compas, they're going to be with you for your career. And so take the time to go out for that beer, you know, take the time to continue the conversation after class. And um, it might not be your colleagues in your same department. You know, my girlfriends were from ethnic studies. They were from literature. You know, um, I was from history. We critiqued each other's stuff. Um, we presented work on panels and invited people we found incredibly intimidating to come comment on our work so people would show up. And they wound up mentoring us into our professional lives. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a big, long laundry, I think, too. To, to how I wound up here, but I would say the, the chaos of my childhood, um, just growing up first working class and then poor after my father left, with a mother determined to keep me in private and parochial school, so going from the middle class space to the low income middle class on a daily basis, that kind of chaos really makes you uh, see movement, right? Um, destructive and productive. And it becomes a lens, I think, for understanding reality. Yeah. I mean, I almost just want to rip up my paper because I think, you know, my notes here, because I think you really, um, your life history really does speak to what the book is about, right? This idea of what does it mean to map home? Um, and really, what does it mean to make history our homes, especially when we, it, we're, we're kicked out of those homes, right? You know, we're kicked out of history in so many different ways. And, and for those bodies that are living on the margins, um, you know, in every sense of the word, um, history almost reproduces that, you know, reproduces that violence. Um, in the same way that home sometimes for people and, and you know, and Gloria Anseldua reminds us of that, right? Um, I always tell people that I have the word uh, home tattooed on my back. I really do. Um, because I, I think of Ansaldua and I think about what does that represent and how we have to carry that. Um, and it really does bring us to talking about your book, right? Um, and first of all, I really, I, I cannot say this enough. Um, I really did enjoy this book and I sat with it and I go back to it and I sit with it. And it's really helping me think um, about uh, my responsibility to history and responsibility to my community. So I, I want to say thank you for writing it. Um, and thank you for sharing sharing these histories, right? And even when you were talking, I, uh, the first thing I thought about was I, I thought about was Jack. Um, when you talked about movements and por your mother's uh, struggles to you know to keep you in these schools, and I was like, you know, this is in the book, right? And I hope that for folks who are listening, that. Um, when we think about our intimate connections to our scholarship, I think you really did ex exemplify that, right, in so many different ways. And so, you know, maybe, you know, we can, you know, kind of segue into talking about the text, right, kind of jumping off of that conversation um, and really about how... Um, really our responsibility to these lives and to these historical projects that we engage. And so one thing I really appreciated 
about how you position both Jack and Gwen, or at least how your writing really allowed me as a reader, right? Because I'm looking at it as a reader, um, to sit with or alongside these lives is that although you're talking about these historical movements or eras, right, and these political movements and moments, um, that these lives are not anchored or solely existing within these moments, right? But that they're traveling with us, that they're across space and time. And to me, Jack was with us when we lost Gwen. And Gwen was with Jack as... um, as he moved, you know, across these spaces. Um, And I think it was a reminder of how we force bodies to remain contained within these moments, right? And it's a form of violence when we do that. Um, And can can you really uh, maybe spend some time talking about what does it mean or how you mean that for, for queer bodies, right? Or gendered bodies, and more specifically for Chicana, Chicano, Chicanx, you know, bodies um, exist both outside and within time and how conceptualizations of times disrupt our notions of what does it mean to exist within these spaces or to survive within these spaces? Absolutely. And 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 I think, and this is you know, some of my Catholicism coming out, I think of, you know, the communion of saints, right? So we all, we've, we have our favorite persons who I have a headache, so I'm going to ask Saint, you know, Teresa to walk with me today. Um, and for for people for whom the dominant narrative resonates, they've got these mythic forefathers and so on and so forth. It's it's critical for those who of us who are Chicanx, who are queer, Latinx, um, to also have our anchors who walk with us and, and move through time. Um, and so when I found Jack in the work of Lou Sullivan, who was a Euro-American trans man, I was high. And there was, I, I should have uh, put a post-it in the page. He's got one line, right? One line that says, um, you know, the son of the first Mexican co- consul to California. And I was like, oh, he was Mexican. <laughs> and, and, so, and so I wanted to find that story. I was like, um, I couldn't believe that it was just one sentence. And then somehow that identity disappeared from the narrative of the rest of the book. And so it was like, okay, so that's his lens, right? He sees the trans, he doesn't see, you know, the Mexicano. And so I was like, um, but, right, by that time I was in grad school, I'm like, but I can do that. I can go back. And so the wonderful thing about Lou Sullivan is that he archived everything. Everything's at, at the archive in San Francisco. Um, in the San Francisco room of the public library who have the best archivists in the world and welcome everyone. And so, <laughs> as opposed to other archives I won't mention. Um, and, so, um, and so I was able to spend a summer. I received funding from Washington State University um, to, to do this archival research and uh, read over his notes and then realize, oh, some of the stuff will be at the Bancroft, read it over some of his father's papers as the, as the first Mexican consul, found some stuff in Ancestry.com that sent me to the state archives um, because I found out he had actually been incarcerated in the um, state institution, which I didn't find out until like years into the research. Um, and so was able to find this, you know, uh, mythic ancestor um, to imagine the past, the present and the future with um, the sort of, you know, 
clouds of, of the holy people. <laughs> um, and so for me, finding Jack's story was critical. And it takes me back to, you know, sitting in my first Chicano history class and just being high for the week because the stories were finally intersecting with the home stories, you know. Um, when you're yourself or Nebantla squared, it's critical to have um, those stories. And so that was some of what I was trying to do the, with these narratives. Um, with Gwen's story, originally it was written in rage. It was just um, somebody put a copy of the story about her violent murder in my box. So I would know because I was from California. Um, and that was about the time, I don't remember before or after, um, the Matt Shepard killing. And so you had all these thousands and thousands of discourse. And I was at the Western History Association and a young white dyke was like, we've got to do something about this. And I was just like, so sick of all the deaths of young people from our community being ignored that I just walked out of the room. I was just like, screw this, right? Um, and so I was like, and so writing about what happened to Gwen originally was just anger at the erasure, anger and rage at the erasure. Um, and so that first, it started as an article, uh, learning from the death of Gwen Arajo. And if you read the article, there's still a lot of rage in it. And so when I came to the book, I, I was like, you know, I want this to also be about hope for our trans youth. And so I also need to sit down and look at the beauty in her life, the beauty of her mother's activism, um, the beauty of the hope that comes from that activism. And so you'll see a very different tone if you look at the original article and then you look at the chapter. And I think the chapter... The articles, the rage that we carry with us, and the chapters more the hope that we carry with us, and um, I think our antepasados um, are are critical to have how we can both express that rage and also carry that hope. And that sobrevivencia, right? Our anger could move us into that survival in different ways, and I really appreciated that. Um, uh, that chapter because of that and having heard Gwen's mother speak um, a few years after um, the murder, um, I'm reminded that, you know, the hope has to be part of that anger too. Um, and I really appreciate how you articulate that in the book and um, and how, how you're helping us think about that and helping us um, really think about what does it mean to mourn through that anger, but also kind of um, call it out you know, you know, really call it that erasure out. And and I think Gwen's mom is just an example of what to do with that grief and that anger. She took it and she went and spoke in junior high schools to young people, right? Um, which to me is just amazing, right? Just amazing. It is. And, you know, and it really um, brings us, you know, to, to talking about, um, I'm, I'm glad that you started that conversation about the archives, right, and the work that, that kind of inspired you to do, to write this book. 
Um, and I, I love how you treat the intellectual and theoretical and really the love practices of Chicana scholars who inspire your book and, and the work as archives themselves, right? These these uh, bodies and these textual evidence um, that um, the community has always been here, has always been engaging, has always been loving, has always been surviving. And I, I love the way in which you remind us of the questions that the field is asking today, right? You know, thinking about what young, you know, scholars are engaging and the excitement in their scholarship is still grounded, right? If we think of, if we think of Ansaldua and even um, Emma Perez's work as, as archives in themselves. So, you know, I was wondering if you can talk a little about how you envision or perhaps even hope that your work here will help us to move us forward, right, through this time and space, or even disrupt these notions of, of time and space. And what do you really want your book to contribute? Wow. Wow. So um, I think, let me read just a little excerpt uh, where um, I, I go there at the end of the book. And then I'd like to back up a little if I can. Um, and talk about um, just the work of of the women, some of the women you mentioned that that make this work possible, right? Um, I growing up in a world where those people wrote books, those people to be a person who gets to write books still sometimes blows me away. So I respond to your question and I think, wow. Okay. So, um, but I did think about how I want this to influence people. That's part of how I wrote the book. That's the reality. I get to write books. And so this, uh, this paragraph, I think, um, says it, um, as concisely as I can think. Um, it says, and so the struggle continues. We live in a time of motion change. This is not to argue that previous ages were devoid of motion and weaving, but that this, our age, is a time of accelerated motion. And looking at the past, we can see other times of rapid motion change, such as California's late 19th century shift to monopoly capital. That change, too, brought about rapid shifts in culture and power, displacing thousands of people prior to its settling. Today, the shift to global capital remains incomplete. Culture again is shifting. Communities are being torn from their homeland. There is no guarantee that the world that emerges from the shift will be any better than the last. The world, words of Gloria Anzaldúa are hopeful, yet also a call to action. Quote, it is this nuevo mundo, this new order, we need to create with the choices we make, the acts we perform, and the futures we dream, end of quotation. If we're not to repeat the violence of the late 19th century, we need to learn from the past. If we seek to participate in the weaving of a more just society to realize the prophecy of the sixth son, then all of us must leave fear behind, learn from communities such as the Zapatistas and the Transgender Law Center, and with our dreams and our labor, create a new world. And so I'm hoping I can help bring hope and help us dream, um, use history as a tool for, um, you know, we say as historians, we learn from the past to the create the future. No, we have to learn from the past and dream the future and make the future. Um, and so when I think of some of these great scholars whose names you mentioned, I think of the way that, you know, Emma Bettis was like, we have to listen to the silences, right? We have to listen to the silences. 
um, we have to take what's useful and leave behind what's not useful. Um, her decolonial imaginary was another one of those books that, but I also look to the work of, you know, Antonia Castaneda, um, Maria Linda Apodaca, who was doing, uh, feminist materialist Chicana analysis of history in the 70s, who said we have to look at the material reality of our lives and start from there. Um, and so um, also calling attention, right, with my work to their work, because these are still, right, the the tools we all need, right? Um, Castaneda's work continues to just knock me, you know, knock me on my, my butt and, and get me thinking about the work that needs to be done and how these constructions and this movement from the 19th century continues to shape our world and can teach us strategies, right, for, for surviving in, in this time. Yeah. So I appreciate the, that oh. because... <laughs> No, no, please go. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was, I was meeting with one of my grad students last week who's new, who's Chicana, but new to Chicana studies. And um, we were talking about the politics of footnotes and citations. And I told her, you know, part of Chicana studies is we don't write off tools because they were 30 years ago. We acknowledge how those tools make possible our work. And we remind people that those tools are there. So you might wind up with editors who say, oh, you need to cut this and that and the other thing. That's, you know, uh, too uh, grad schoolish to do. And I'm like, no, we show respect to the people who made the work possible. And that means we're able to show how those tools are still critical and essential. Yeah. And continue to guide us, right? You know, and, and you know, you're Absolutely. thinking, you, you're mentioning or talking about uh, the influences and that idea of hope um, to dare to dream, right? And and so I'm sitting here um, as a Puerto Ricana, right? Um, but also as a mother of Chicana Ricanas, right? And so I think about my responsibility and those connections and, um, you know, you, you, your book is really about mapping these histories in different ways. And, you know, um, and I'm living along those mapping of the histories. And I think of I-35 as part of that mapping. Um, my children and I are here because of the Bracero program, because they're abuelo and they're abuela. Um, and now we're scattered along this one corridor. And what does that mean in terms of these economic policies that you talk about in your book, too, which I think really... Um, I, the whole book is exciting, but when I started really thinking about how um, the, almost these scattering of bodies and these histories uh, through this, these historical readings of the political and the economic um, and the consequences of that throughout history, um, very particular gendered, um, you know, bodies, I think to me really is what I'm, I'm walking away with the most in the text. And so um, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you can talk a little, because um, I'm, you know, in the paperback version of your book on page 85, you talk about how hate crimes are not individual acts of violence, right? How all hate crimes are somehow structurally connected and that their attacks are larger communities, right? How all these systems are connected. 
the schools, police, economic, political entities, they're all connected. I was wondering if you can talk a little about how these histories, how the lives of Gwen and Jack force us to challenge us to acknowledge this, right, specifically for historians to acknowledge how the political and the economic are part of um, the ways in which we should be in conversation with history. Absolutely. And, and, I, and part of the deep history that I start the chapters with is not just to acknowledge that, you know, this motion change is not new. And so I, I tend to start with who was here before the settlers arrived, right? Because that's um, a, a major, not the initial, but a major shift, right? In, and move into motion change to where we, we have our bodies and we have these bodies of our antepasados in these spaces. Um, but in those spaces, we have to understand how the institutions within which we live and in which these historical figures live came to be. And so what was the function in capital um, in, in California, in Gwen's time, in Jack's time? Both time periods are these time periods of inc- intense change in capital where dot-coms are coming and going in, in Gwen's lifetime, where the railroads and agribusiness are creating disruption in Jack's time. And so that creates these spaces of movement where we have an attempt to stabilize. And so we can see that in Jack's incarceration, where the uh, incarceration of women and queer people and working class people in California was out of control with the rise of the state um, uh, mental hospital system. Um, and then if we look at Gwen's time and the way that bodies were policed in, in public schools and continue to be as people try to stabilize gender in a time where right gender is in flux because we live in a gendered raced capitalist society our capitalism is raced and gendered um so in looking at these then we can see how oh my glory these are all interwoven to create the violences um that we face and so then we have to be really strategic and use what you know sandoval calls oppositional politics and strategies um, in dealing with this in dealing with this so what can we learn from the zapatistas who aren't like overtly identified as queer but boy the shifts they made in gender and women's power are definitely queer um, especially if we take, you know, you were speaking of Anselzoa earlier in our conversation, and of course she's absolutely inspiration for this text. Um, her, her earlier work that I first read before I read Borderlands, I read This Bridge and where she wrote of El Mundo Sordo, right? The left-handed world of all these different kinds of queer people coming together working class people, expansively queer. She had this expansive understanding of queer. Well, if capitalism's going to be uh, uh, octopus, queerness needs to be an octopus. It needs to be more expansive, right? More expansive. And so for me, it's critical to map this octopus. And, and part of that is just acknowledging then we can't be in our silos, Right. If we're going to survive and we need to be pulling tools from everywhere we can. Right. Gwen was murdered because systems failed her. She had a loving family and that was not enough to save her because the systems failed her. The schools failed her. The schools that are there to serve capital failed her. 
Right. I, you know, and it and it makes me think about um, again, you know, back, you know, on the chapter on on Gwen, right? Although I, you know, I say the chapter on Gwen, the book is Gwen Absolutely. is across the entire text and across history and across time and place place and in the in between, right? Um, where you, you know, close with that question of how can and does revolutionary love survive amid violence, right, of this, our time of motion change, right, that, that idea of survival. Um, and so, you know, I was wondering if you can talk to us a little about how, what our responsibilities really are in historical research to not ensure, or to ensure really that Gwen doesn't suffer, and, and you know, not just Gwen, but others who have been othered and have faced and, and, and been you know, have faced violence, don't face that double death almost, right? How does research, our research and historical work not lead to a double death almost through the ways in which we talk about them and how we engage? Because I'm, I'm sitting with that question and I have it underlined a million times in the book, you know, how can and does revolutionary love survive amidst violence? Yes. And, um, and it's hard because you have to have your heart open is, is, is step number one. Um, and when, um, and, and that means there's, there's points in time where we have to take a little break from our research because it's so heavy. Um, because these are difficult stories to hear, to tell, to carry with us. Um, because they connect us, right? Um, to, to these difficult stories. And so as historians, we have an obligation not just to tell the story, but to tell the story from our connection to that story. Um, so there can't be uh, those people, or that's also, to me, as bad as the erasure, right? Because then the people become objects. Um, so it's very critical to tell the stories where our antepasados and our um, sisters and brothers are subject, right? Are our absolute subject, um, and to do so with our hearts open. And so this um, sometimes brings accusations of bias. And but we know, right? Even even some of our Euro historians know they've read his, you know, Novik, that noble dream. They know everybody brings their bias with them. Um, and because it's such difficult work, I think it's important for us just to be aware of the weight that we carry with that work and the vulnerability, right? To write about Gwen, I really felt I needed to go talk to Sylvia. Guerrero. I really felt I needed to talk to Gwen's mom, um, asking her to be vulnerable, asking her to talk to me about the child that she lost. And so we've got to take risks. And when we ask people to take the risks, we have to be absolutely open and vulnerable to them, right? Otherwise, it's, it's a violent conversation. And so it's hard work, but this is the critical work. If we're really going to tell 
stories that are going to change the world and bring hope to the next generation of queer and Latinx and queer Latinx young people coming of age. Um, this is the work we need to do. So um, kind of helping us wrap it up, right? I, so I'm wondering if, if you know, you, you've said, you know, which resonates with me a lot, you know, this idea of hope, this idea of love, vulnerability in our research. If you could, you know, you think you keep saying, you know, dream, you know, we should be about, it should be about dreaming and moving us forward. Um, and so as a historian, right, what, if you could go back, if you can, you know, because we, I do believe we do move in, you know, these, these in between times and space, um, this time of change, right? If you can go back to sitting in that classroom as a graduate student, um, what would you tell yourself about that future and that possibility? Wow. Um, because it's different now, right? Uh, 20 years ago, there were more tenure track jobs, right? Um, and so for myself, um, I would say both. Um, you're going to be able to speak your truths. You're going to be able to have your voice heard. You're going to be able to mentor uh, a generation of inspirational um, young scholars. Um, but I'd also remind myself that this it's not going to fix everything back home. Um, and that change is slow. And that we have to remember to reconnect back home and with families from back home um, so that we can see how very slow change is. Um, but that it's going to be a wonderful adventure. Um, that your mother is going to be incredibly, incredibly proud of you and read everything you read, write, and tell you what she thinks of it. Um, and that you are going to uh, have an opportunity to work with some wonderful people who care about creating a better world. Well, and one of those people is you. So I want to say thank you for, you know, moving us through um, this text, your work, your thinking, and allowing us the space to dream, uh, to hope, and to love, especially for those of us who uh, face spaces, systems, um, and even, you know, scholarly fields that tell us that that hope and that love doesn't have a place in the scholarship that we engage. So I really do want to say thank you to you for taking the time to meet with us today and to speak with us today and to helping us really reimagine uh, what imagination should be in historical research. So thank you uh, to you, Linda, but also to the Journal um, of Women's History for, for allowing us the time and space to share today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Can I do one quick plug? Yes, please. <laughs> um, and as, as, as you were thanking me, I was thinking of MOLCs, Mujeres Activas en la Tras y Cambio Social. And so I just want to say to all the young scholars out there, all the young Latinas, um, Latinos, right? Um, Latina women and trans scholars, that there's this fabulous organization, MOLCs. And um, it's, it's a it's a lifeline for us. Um, it's a place of dreamers and activism and scholarship. And if you haven't checked the space out, go online, find us, um, and, uh, and join us. <laughs> 
I have to agree on that. Um, you know, I have been influenced by a lot of the, uh, specifically a lot of the Chicanas, a lot of the mujeres that have been influential in those spaces. And um, you talked about it's okay to invite those folks to to be your readers and have those conversations, those difficult, ask those difficult questions at panels. And, you know, I think about people like Diana Espinosa, who has challenged and loved me in so many different ways um, because of those spaces and those conversations. So I agree, please, you know, join those spaces, be part of those communities because they were created and there's a lot of sacrifice that has gone into the creation of those spaces. So let's let them live on and continue those traditions and, and uh, looking back to move forward as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much, Jennifer, for inviting us. And this was this was great. <laughs>